Welcome to the Doug and Birch Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. My name is Mary Vandenack. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trust and estates, business succession and exit planning, law practice technology, management and leadership, and upon occasion, well-being. First of all, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory Housing and Business Centers, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guests are Evan Levine and Nanesh Shah. Evan is a founding partner of Complete Advisors, a New York evaluation and advisory firm responsible for business development. He has 33 years of experience advising business owners on various financial and planning matters. Nanesh is a founding partner of Complete Advisors and heads the valuation department. He is a CFA, CVA, and serves on the National Association of Valuation Analyst Board. He specializes in valuing unique and complex entities and assets for gift, estate tax, and charitable planning. I asked Evan and Nanesh to participate in this episode today to discuss strategies for valuing complex and unusual entities. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Mary. Great to be back. Uh, It's been a couple of years uh, since we spoke on this show last, and uh, we're looking looking forward to the conversation. 
But I do want to note that you have been on the show previously, and those episodes can still be found both at our website as well as on several other sites. They were pretty popular and found their way to being listened to quite frequently. So I really appreciate you coming back. Can we start today by just giving me an overview of what constitutes a complex and unusual entity from a legal perspective, and why does valuing such an entity pose a legal challenge? So let me start, Mary, um, and uh, Evan can uh, join uh, whenever he feels like. So when you think about complex securities or entities uh, or unusual entities, you, th you should think in terms of what is simple and then what is, whatever is not simple is complex. Um, and simple is something is like a regular business, uh, has a long history, has a growth trajectory, and you can predict. It uh, doesn't have any complexity of uh, multiple entities within it and no foreign subsidiaries. So anything that is not simple, I would say complex. But you can think of complex and un unusual entities can be divided into multiple segments. One is complex financial instrument. So that can be options, futures, swap option, currency trades, that type of thing. And there are multi many, many kind of uh, complex financial instrument. But then you can also think about um, complex uh, instruments, which are uh, not financial directly, but if you think about earnouts or even NFTs or uh, buy and sell agreement, that might have some complexity. So that's second category. And lastly, there are organizations that can be very complex. So an uh, organization that has multiple subsidiaries, uh, has a uh, corporation within corporations, uh, has a, um, foreign subsidiaries, so that makes it complex. And, and then last category can be uh, business can have a complexity because it, it's uh, um, hard to predict their cash flow, either because of revenue in a related is issue or some risk related issue, but we can talk about that later. So when dealing with these complex entities, what are the key factors that should be taken into account during the valuation process, especially when you compare these to more standard valuations? What you really have to understand is the underlying characteristics of the instruments or businesses. So if you if you say if you're thinking about a valuing or not, what is driving that or not? Is it the revenue? Is it some kind of a future expectation about the or not? Uh, and once you once you kind of understand the underlying characteristics, then you can start thinking thinking about what financial model you're going to use, and um, you know then 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 you can kind of predict. So the other other thing that you should be thinking about is what are the risks that is driving this complexity, and you have to incorporate that in your valuation. Yeah. So I'll, I would just add, you know, an example to that would be a, a, a startup valuation or pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical trials where you need to use some type of optionality methodology and so forth, uh, just as one example. So let's talk about the role that the choice evaluation method plays when dealing with these complex, uh, complex entities 
And what are some of the common methods used in such cases? It sounds like we have our standard business entities and there's a pretty, you know, standard protocol for that. But when we get to these complex entities, there's some different considerations that I'm hearing we need really need to look at and understand the underlying factors. So let's go. Can you just fill me in a little bit on the valuation methods when dealing with these entities? Yeah. Broadly speaking, the valuation methods are um, asset approach, your, your market approach, and the income approach. Typically, what happens is uh, some of these approaches are hard to apply directly. And so you have to find a ways to apply it. Um, and, and valuation method can drive the final number. So for example, you know, Mike, um, Michael um, um, Jackson's the uh, valuation was on trial uh, for how much was Michael Jackson's name worth? And the valuation range between IRS and Michael Jackson's valuators were like millions of dollars apart. So as 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 it indicates, the del- what you put into that valuation model kind of drives drives the valuation. The when the structures are complex, you have to bring in financial derivative type of ideas into into picture. Uh, so it can be, are you applying some kind of a black and salts model? Are you applying some kind of a binary option model? Or do you have to use some kind of a, um, Monte Carlo simulation? So those are all the type of different ways you can think about valuing, uh, but you have to use multiple methods and then try to synchronize it. So how do you handle the valuation of an asset that has a unique revenue generation model, such as companies with a really volatile revenue stream. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Evan, um, chime in whenever. But uh, I let me give you an example. If you are valuing a business that is dependent on some weather pattern, and on top of that, if the value is, if the revenues depend on, on some contracts that might last long-term or might not last long, that's pretty pretty unique. You, you, you would have a hard time predicting the revenue. And if you have a hard time predicting the revenue, then you will have a hard time predicting the value. Another example, crypto miners. So, you know, Bitcoin miners or Ethereum miners, um, First of all, it's hard. You kind of know how many coins they can mine, but you, what you don't know is what is the underlying price of those coins, and then are you, when are they going to sell? So again, it creates a complexity. Uh, and then what you're trying to do is um, use some kind of a model, some kind of a historical perspective, and then add optionality on top of that. And uh, the the example that I think about in in this term is when insurance company insures some unique asset, so uh, a hand hand of a quarterback or a voice of a singer or of a a, a leg of a footballer um, or soccer player. So, So those are unique. And then they have to see if they have enough data that they can collect to analyze. In the same way, we as evaluator, we have to figure out 
can we collect enough data to predict some of this uh, volatile revenue? So is this what you're spending your day doing is like valuing the value of an arm of a quarterback or <laughs> a baseball player? Yeah. I, 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 I'm just, I'm just getting a chuckle. It a right, well, no. Complexity. We, we have not done that, that, but I, I think it's a great analogy because insurance companies have to think about this kind of risk all the time and what it's worth and what's the probability that they'll have to indemnify and so forth. So like Nanish said, Nanish is um, so comfortable doing this because of his un relatively unique background to the uh, valuation space coming from Wall Street. As a CFA and as a portfolio manager, um, a lot of the typical um, valuation providers have a CPA and tax background. So having this financial background enables him to um, bring a sort of fresh thinking to some of these uh, unique and complex assets and entities. And I, I think Wall Street itself, I have a brother-in-law in Wall Street, and it's just interesting to me to hear, you know, what actually gets traded. I think one of his first jobs was trading emissions permits, which I didn't know there was such a market. And so there's <laughs> just a lot of really unique assets out there that do get valued. And you mentioned a few of them, and I just think it's a really fascinating topic. Well, yeah, it's quite interesting, Mary, because, um, you know, weathers get uh, traded. I don't know if you knew that. So you can buy some kind of a weather prediction. Uh, and there are so many new ways because of um, tools, uh, easy tools. There are a lot of interesting, uh, you know, I see trading of inflation. I see trading of who's going to win certain election, all kind of things going on. And uh, uh, there are ways to... And one thing Nanish uh, Mary has, has reminded me um, is that uh, in the context of valuations for state and gift tax planning, which is similar but different, of course, than valuing public companies, you know, the numbers and the charts and the graphs are one thing, but Nanish always reminds me that we need a narrative, a narrative to how we arrived at this conclusion of value and a narrative that can be explained, uh, you know, if it's ever challenged in a rather, um, you know, uh, in a manner that someone could understand. And uh, that's what we try to do when we create these reports. I really like that statement. I'd say that's something in training associates forever that I've stated, regardless of whether it's evaluation or just presenting our arguments to you know, the IRS or something like that is create a narrative that's easy to follow and that you can understand, especially when you're dealing with these types of complex issues. You're going to have to break down exactly the details, even to the extent you brought up like the crypto miners, right, is explaining here's what crypto is and this is why it's a volatile income stream, et cetera. So that's a great point. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. At Foster Group, we know there are more important things than money. There's the joy of providing a lovely home for your family, the excitement of an early retirement, the relief knowing that an unexpected emergency won't ruin your finances. At Foster Group, we're invested in the things that make life, life, and how to get there. Foster Group. Your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com.
Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. Well, let's talk about valuing intangible assets, such as patents or trademarks. That could be quite challenging. You mentioned one intangible in terms of like Michael Jackson's name, and that popped into mind a whole lot of different categories. But let's go with the patents or trademarks route. What methods or approaches do you find effective for these assets? Um, yeah, again, you know, it's, it's, it's good to always go to the basics and think in terms of three core approaches, as I mentioned earlier. Is it asset, market, and income approach? Uh, in, in, in case of uh, patents, you can think about cost, cost approach as well. Um, and then it also depends on, is this patent uh, something that has been, we can find similar patents in the database. So there are multiple databases like Royalty Range and KT Mines. You can access the database for what is the going rate on the royalties. Um, but sometimes the property is unique. We did a, a valuation on a 3D um, object tracking patents. And those can be so unique that you have to think in terms of um, how, you know, there's no parallel uh, and you have to start Kind of thinking in think in terms of valuing the whole portfolio together as a, as a startup of a company. Uh, so every time it's different. If it is ex established existing pattern, it's easier and and you have access to databases. But if it is not, then you again have to come up with a creative idea. And and going back to what you and Avin was saying, if you create a good narrative around it, then it is easier to defend. So, and again, as you're talking, I'm thinking of just a number of really unique businesses that I personally work with, and there's really are a lot of unique assets. So finding somebody who really understands the importance of almost what I hear you say is you have to think a little outside the box, yet create an understandable framework in the process. Yeah, so exactly. my, yep. my next question is actually kind of self-serving because I do this a lot. So... I create a lot of structures that have, you know, multi-tiered ownership arrangements. And we do that intentionally for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's just simply to structure them to buy or sell any part or the whole, or it might be asset protection, or there might be tax strategies involved. But I'm guessing I certainly make it a little bit harder for you to value when I do that. So how does that work? Yeah, and we see that, and we have, we have valued, um, as I was saying, the complexity can arise because there's this uh, structure within the structure. And I, to make, make, to bring everything together, you have to start from the simplest form. And I would think um, that you need to value individual ownership or individual corporation or LLC uh, within another LLC and then start building the model up. And finally, you get some valuation for the top, the main corporation. Uh, and um, that's why sometimes it becomes, you know, sometimes the cost becomes significant uh, and, and client might not grasp it. If there are 10 corporations within one large corporation, you are valuing 11 companies. And 
the time and effort that goes to value one company, you're, you know, it's going for 11 uh, times. So yes, it is, it is, uh, it increases comp the, and, 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 you know, Evan, Evan does this multiple times is when somebody calls us uh, for valuation, we never can give estimate straight away. Uh, because we want to understand the com you know what's co what, how complex it is and then once we get some basic data then we decide how much how much time will go in valuing and how much effort will go into that valuation well and i guess what i'd say about that on the expense is the fact that it has multiple entities itself doesn't necessarily result in significantly more expense i'm going to qualify my statement because if those are multiple lines of business and they were all within the same entity you'd still have to look at each line of business separately, wouldn't you? And then value that as part of the whole. So it's kind of somewhat the same, but somewhat different because there might, there's some factors that might apply in the multi-tiered structure mm -hmm. that wouldn't apply with the, if everything's within one entity. But my thought Correct. is you're still having to value each asset within the structure. And sometimes things become easier because you're talking to the same people, you're asking for the same information, and information comes to you easier. So the, the time might get compression. That also helps in reducing the cost. Well, let's talk about valuing startups and early-stage companies. In these cases, you have an absence of historical financial data, which is one of the basics of valuation. So what approaches do you use to value startups and early-stage companies? Yeah, we we use multiple uh, ways to think about startups. So first of all, you have to grasp what stage of life the the startup is at. You know, is it two? Is it real real idea stage? Is it uh, at the stage where they they have some prototype? Are they do they have actual customer? And are they at the path where they can start thinking about large revenue and some some uh, profit? All those are different life stages of a startup. And then you have to think uh, of many different ways that you can value at different stage of a, of a startup's life. Uh, Sometimes it can be as simple as grasping 10 or 12 basic uh, characteristics of a startup and then giving some kind of a rating to it and then comparing that with some, uh, uh, some numbers that uh, venture capital might be thinking of, capitalists might be thinking about. But we have found that there are other ways uh, if a startup is thinking of valuing in a, some unique way. Um, you might have come across this, Mary, but there's something called CBCV, consumer-based corporate valuation. And if you can identify a consumer, unique consumer that, uh, that a startup is um, uh, addressing to, and then you can attach how long to that consumer can last, what is the revenue generation and what is contribution from that consumer, then you can create a valuation of that uh, startup. And you know that can be quite unique and it can create a real story and focus that startup can think about. And I appreciate the thoughts on startups. We work with a lot of those, so it's a really interesting area. The other thing I talk with businesses about, and we've done some additional episodes on intellectual property and brand value, and including we had a marketing person on how to make your, you know, improve and strengthen your brand when you're looking at evaluation. And these are certainly part of the value of entities. And I think sometimes insufficient attention is given to them. So how do you navigate the complexities of valuing these assets in the mix? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's always challenging, and you have to kind of be able to extract. If you if you didn't have the brand, what would be the potential for the revenue or the pricing? And when you try to uh, combine that, so let me give you a simple example. If you go in the store trying to buy Oreo, uh, you can pay, let's say, $4 per, per bag. But there are very similar cookies around, and that might be selling for $2. And if, as a consumer, how much difference would you pay for Oreo as a brand? Would you pay to double price, triple price, how much? And that kind of creates some idea about what is the value of a brand. But, uh, and then, then you can ex, you know, extrapolate that for anything else. Um, what you, and going back to what, again, what you and Avin was saying earlier, most of the time, if a valuation goes into a litigation, what you're trying to convince is a judge. And judge probably, most of the judges don't have a business background. They are taking all kinds of cases. So whatever narrative that you come up with, and you can support that with the, with the data, that's what will really. So work. that narrative you talked about could be is mm -hmm. important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that includes not just in a report for the IRS, but if you're bringing it before a judge or anybody who's not familiar with the subject. So, yeah. so and and uh, um, I've attended a lot of uh, seminars where judges speak and you, some of these judges are really, really smart and they deal with businesses all the time, but that's not the case in most of the country. Some, most of the time, judges take a lot of different type of cases and business cases are just one type. There is at least, yeah. there is a yeah. trend in a few states to have some specialized courts, which I think will help a little bit. Yeah, and also along those lines, uh, Mary Nanish taught me recently about the sanity test which I think comes right out of the NACVA textbook where um, you go through this entire, you know, quantitative, qualitative valuation report. And if it meets all the uh, NACVA IRS requirements, it could be 70, 80, or 90 pages for better or worse. But at the end of the day, you just ask yourself a simple question. Does this make sense? So if you're valuing a business, you know, is it in the ballpark of what that owner would sell the business for? Does it make sense? And it's such a simple um, it's such a simple question, but it can be a very important part of the narrative. Um, you know, does it meet the sanity test? Does it make sense? And, and that's a really good question. And it's really interesting when you're having conversations with somebody who's doing the valuation and the business owner to see where they land. Well, let's talk for a minute about cross-border valuation issues. So it's, you know, there's a lot of international companies these days, for good reason, a lot of international trade. What are some of the unique considerations in this area? Um, it's a good question, Mary. There are a lot of things that needs to be considered. First of all, you need to understand the currency transactions, right? And how that impacts the revenue and the cost structure. Then you also have to understand the local economies and where the revenues, you know, would the revenue get impacted if the economy changes? So, in a way, what you're doing is uh, you are trying to understand each component. So, again, going back to what you were saying earlier, there might be corporation within corporation. And here, there are corporation within corporation, but in a different country, now you're trying to understand 
how each component will affect the, the larger, broader parent company. And sometimes the revenue is in one country and cost is in another country and that you have to kind of bring into fusion. The other thing is that we need to constantly think about is, are we going to get enough documentation or data? Because without data, how to analyze, without uh, analysis, there's no valuation. So shareholder disputes and buyouts are common in these complex entities. What needs to be considered about valuation strategies to help resolve these types of conflicts effectively? So you hope that there are existing agreement, right? <laughs> and that might be defined, it, it might be well-defined and uh, this this might be a good uh, thing for your for the client, for the listener is to usually you need to update that those agreements there is a, there's always a clause every one year every five years you need to update uh, the agreement between uh, different partners in, in a corporation um but if the agreement doesn't stipulate then it's challenging then uh, are you going to have one valuator between multiple partners, are, the, are you going to each partner going to have into, uh, their own valuators, and what will be the final valuation? There's a whole field that's getting developed. Um, is valuation mediation, and um, so if nothing works, then you have to go to mediation, uh, where you have a valuation specialist who can help. And I really have become an advocate of getting the valuation when you're discussing the agreement, because we've had a couple cases recently, most recently the Connolly case out of the Ace Circuit that has kind of changed the approach to valuation has commentators disputing, you know, what do you do with life insurance in that particular case? So I think those agreements should be, I love that comment. Thank you for making it. Those agreements should be reviewed regularly. We're out of time for this episode. So do you have any last thoughts on this topic today? Yeah, I can't help but add one thing again about the sanity test, which uh, Nanish reminds us all the time. The um, the key uh, re- IRS revenue ruling that permeates all valuation work, 5960, the basis of fair market value is very simple. The amount at which the property would change hands between a willing buyer and willing seller when the former is not under any compulsion to buy and the latter is not under any compulsion to sell, both parties having reasonable knowledge of relevant facts. And that's the ruling that is um, uh, permeates all valuation work. Am I right, Nanish? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the comment the, um, from me would be, this is a, this is a really large topic, a broad topic. And um, if, you, if you, as a legal expert, our client uh, know that you know you're not dealing with simple then please find somebody who can help you uh, with the complexity I think that's super important I'm going to add one footnote of my own that you alluded to early when we started but that fair market value as specified in the revenue mm-hmm. 5960 super important because you can enter into an agreement that has a value that doesn't meet that fair market value test, and you could end up in a situation where the amount you report on your state tax return is different from how the IRS values it, which can have really negative economic effects. Well, as we reach the end of our episode today, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, 
Veterans Victory and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. The Doug and Birch Legal Visionaries podcast is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Duggan Birch Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Duggan Birch Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.